0: Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 16, Vinalia. Vinalia was a festival of wine, so popular that they did it twice. Vinalia Urbana, the first, on April 23rd, in which the amphora from the previous year's vintage were opened for the first time and the quality determined. The second was Vinalia Rustica for the vineyard men later in the harvest season, More on that when the time comes. Much like cracking the Beaujolais Nouveau, really, also a sign of impatience, Vero says that wine needs at least a year to mature. And since we're talking about something divinely connected, there needs must be some religious acknowledgement to the occasion. A libation offered to Jupiter, according to Pliny the Elder, after which the wine could be tasted for the first time. The Romans knew from terroir and vintages and aging, and could be as pernickety as any modern sommelier about these matters. Not that they swirled the glass to waft the bouquet, much less spit it out to enjoy a multiplicity of samples. There was red, there was white, there was good, better, and best. Pliny, in his natural history, who can doubt that some kinds of wine are more agreeable than others? Cheers to that, and who would argue? Not Pliny, who bemoans the recent flood of wine cheap and nasty. What Pliny approves is the Falernian, the standard by which all other ancient wines were measured, a white wine from the slopes of Mount Masico, just north of Naples. It even has a god-connected origin story. One day the god Bacchus, presumably slumming it, tired of ambrosia, came to Mount Masico and stopped by the house of a poor farmer, Falernus, eking out a poor living on his nutrient-rich volcanic soil. Strangers get hospitality, and Bacchus, unrecognized, got the full measure. Apples, vegetable, milk and honey, grain. So impressed was he that he did the milk-into-wine trick and promised the old man that his name would get big in the winemaking industry— which would be some surprise since the same account says that wine had not yet been invented. The story is a brief aside in the epic by Cilius Italicus, The Second Punic War, some heartwarming relief from all the fighting and killing. Falernian pops up repeatedly in the literature, in poems and narratives, and even as graffiti in Pompeii. Catullus. Come, boy, you who serve out the old Falernian, fill up stronger cups for me, as the law of Postumia, mistress of the revels, ordains. Postumia, more tipsy than the tipsy grape. Catullus, 27. Horace alludes to the merry days sprawled out on country meadows with a mellowed vintage of Falernian. Vintages mattered, the most notable being Opimian from the banner year of 121 BC in which Lucius Opimius was consul. Opimius is otherwise best remembered for having ordered a tribunal that called for the summary execution, without trial, of supporters of populist firebrand Gaius Gracchus. He was prosecuted for this, Opimius that is, but got off, the Senate was able to get the Senatus Consultum Ultimum into practice, which made lawfare easier in decades to come and made the coming civil wars worse than they might have been. He was also in charge of the crew who oversaw the splitting of Numidia between Jugurtha and Adherbal. Bribery was suspected, investigated, censured, and Opimius sent into exile where he died. He should have stuck to wine. His co-consul, Fabius Allobrogicus, was an improvement, well known for oratory and deep reading, no friend of Gracchus, but in that year he was out of town helping Nero's grandfather biff the Gauls, for which he was given a triumph, which is more than Opimius ever got. Friends brought out that vintage to honor Julius Caesar for his conquest of Spain in 60 B.C., Whether it was better for another four decades of maturing is an interesting question. Pliny the Elder, in his natural history, completed in seventy seven, suggests that it was probably well past its prime. One would like to know on what occasion he actually got to drink the stuff, or if what he drank was the real thing. It is, of course, the wine of choice for the nouveau riche Vulgarian Trimalchio, the former slave who features so prominently in the Satyricon of Petronius. Trimalchio got rich on trade and made his home at Putiole on the Bay of Naples. In the book, he is an easy mark for parasites in search of a free meal. We get a sense of the household by the sight of the man's slaves, who were splashing the stuff about heedlessly, only later bringing out glass wine jars sealed with plaster and little tags on which were written, Falernia opimium, one hundred years old. Trimalchio introduces the drink to his guests. How much longer lived is wine than any poor mortal? Let us drink and be merry, for wine is really life. Just look, here's the genuine old opimium, I didn't put nearly such good liquors at this table yesterday, and yet the people who dined with me then were socially very much superior to you. Even the graffiti artists in Pompeii got into the act, scrawling near one of the local food joints, the information that, at Hedone's Tavern, for one ass you can drink wine, for two you can drink the best, for four you can drink Falernian, presumably a single glass. At the time, a day-laborer could expect pay between five to sixteen asses a day. And from beyond the grave, a man named Primus writes his own elegy as follows. In the grave I lie, who was once well-known as Primus. I lived on Lucrine oysters, often drank Falernian wines. The pleasures of bathing wine and love gave me over the years. Side note. Lucrine oysters or oysters from Lake Lucrine, fresh water, much prized for their delicacy. Pliny the Elder writes of entrepreneurs bringing young oysters from Brundisium at the heel of Italy up to the lake so that they, the oysters, not the entrepreneurs, acquire a special mix of flavors. They were superseded eventually by the importation of British oysters, or those that managed to survive the long trip up and down the coasts. As to Falernion and its graceful aging, if a hundred years is perhaps stretching the matter, the aging in general was not. Falernion, so far as we can tell, and there is disagreement on the topic, was a white wine, but over time, as it aged, became tawny, golden, thus much prized by connoisseurs, if perhaps not so much by drunken slaves or nouveau-riche Vulgarians, Pliny cites three types of Flernian, the rough, the sweet, and the thin. The Roman nose and palate seems to have collided with the Roman sense of economy. Pliny, again, notes that nothing appreciates more in value than wine, but warns that it reaches its peak in about twenty years, after which the price plummets. Ominion would by then have been a great exception, or perhaps its value lay in its legend. For those who could afford it in 1879, the vintage offered a chance to say that one had drunk the best that ever there was, even if a little late to the party. Its value, in other words, rested in its place as an artifact, much like the 18th century bottles of wine said to have been intended or belonging to a Thomas Jefferson. Which sold for six figures a few years back, chiefly on the association value. Not that they didn't know and appreciate other fine wines, some of which connoisseurs are rated higher than Falernian. Pliny himself was partial to the Turicura, especially when mixed with seawater. It had, he said, a bouquet of prunes. Should you prefer the taste of figs, might he recommend a glass of Cetinae? highly regarded by the satiric poet Martial, That particular grape features in a fresco in the back room of a tavern in Pompeii. We see two men, one holding a jug, one holding out his cup. Above the cup-man, some wit has scratched, ade calicem satinum, another glass of satinian. Some have taken this as evidence that the wine was affordable, which is a little odd, Getting back to Silius Italicus again, we read that Setia was reserved for the table of Bacchus himself. Again, could the god be slumming it? After an eternity of the finest stuff, not to mention ambrosia, why not see what the mere mortals are down with? Mortal billionaires of our age are known to like Coke and McDonald's. Then there's the fact that the geographer Strabo says it was expensive— as does Marshall. Given human nature and the surroundings, I like to think that the Graffito was a dig at the owner of a Roman dive bar, where locals knew that the house brand was cheap and nasty. Other frescoes also adorn the room, pictures of cheerful alcoholic vice and gambling. Geico was another top-rated wine, though losing favor by 8079. It was also becoming harder to find. Nero, of all people, ordered the old Caecuban vineyards of Latium dug up as part of his public works project, a canal never completed, from Rome to the Bay of Naples. The idea was to protect the grain ships that otherwise would have to round some tricky parts on the Italian coastline, which mattered more than a mere fine wine. Seems a pity, but needs must. As a side note, It's not as if Romans were immune to wine-associated novelties, either. Marshall describes drinking wine through a kind of colander arrangement in which was snow or perhaps shaved ice. Chills the final drink and cuts the alcohol. The Romans thought that drinking undiluted wine was vulgar. So much for the city folk, and they're getting the benefit of the land. What about the vineyard workers? What are they getting up to? All that stake sharpening done over the winter is over. Roll back a few centuries to a time when Italy was a land without grape. Grape pines originated in Georgia, headed west to Greece, and eventually reached Italy. The locals, no fools, figured that they could do as well themselves, and given the Italian landscape, they clearly were not wrong so the Romans had a few centuries to get the basics down and work on the finer points of winemaking. Terroir is a thing, and Italy has plenty of it. That said, grape pines are a hardy sort of plant and will grow in all kinds of soil. Colomello states that no ground, even the most unfavorable, will fail to yield a return exceeding the expense incurred. Which does not mean that any soil will produce good wine, but at least they don't have to be overly pampered. On the other hand, a bit of effort on the part of the vine can only do the end product some good. As in most things in life, the easy path is generally the wrong path. So, men like Falernus, they had the land, but what to do with it? Start by preparing it. Again, grapes will grow in bad soil, but there's no reason to torture them. For now, the garden man has the hard path. Dig that soil. Falernus had the advantage of having to do it by hand. That is to say, no temptation to use heavy machinery that can compact the soil and inhibit the spreading of roots. Grape roots go deep and wide. Best to let them go where they like, into the minerals and the water. Speaking of water, they like it, as which of us does not? The Romans dug trenches along the rows to encourage water to head down and not out. You did not want a vineyard that did not have a nearby source of dependable water. Those stakes that the farmer had been sharpening all winter, Columella and Pliny recommend chestnut, by the way, if you're taking notes, you want those firmly in place, about five feet or so apart, and enough room for people to walk along the rows. Leave it at that, or run supports of some kind, wood or rope between the stakes, and let the vine entwine thereupon. Contemporary mosaics show thick horizontal wooden braces affixed to the top of stakes, high above the workers' heads, and nothing closer to the ground, which makes the fable of the fox who could not get at the grapes understandable. Earlier grape growers let trees support the vine, either singly, which was the easy way out, but if you add a row of poplar, you add a cost-saving method which has been used within living memory. Other solutions for keeping the fruit high up have been used over time. All this to let the leaves bask in the sun rather than rot in the ground, and to expand the whole photosynthesis process, thus increasing ultimate output. The standard plot set up, if we're following the vineyard advice of Columella, was a hundred vines in one half of a Ugarum, about a third of an acre, or an eighth of a hectare. Five feet or so between the plants themselves. The idea was in part psychological. A small enough plot that will not overwhelm the workers. They, and you, can see decent progress in a given day, and also judge the progress of your crop. Understand that it's going to be five years before you'll get a harvest if you're starting from scratch, The Romans propagated their vines from cuttings. Grafting was unknown because unnecessary. That modern standard is the result of the phylloxera parasite that killed off the roots of European vines in the 1860s, threatening the entire continent. North American vines, not noted for fine fruit, were, however, resistant to the parasite and would accept graftings of its more sophisticated European cousins thus saving the European wine industry. Christy Campbell wrote the book on that fascinating story. You should read it. Never mind the roots. What about the parts we can see? Basically, once the stalk is growing, it produces buds, which produce canes, which in turn produce grape clusters. Year one is a year of pruning, or rather pinching, The aim being to force shoots upwards up the stake until it reaches the crossbeams. By year two, with luck, the plant will be well enough up that it can grow sideways along the trellis. Pinch buds that are not positioned for horizontal growth. Year three, let buds on the horizontal produce canes. By the way, the pinching and pruning, burn it, in case of disease. You don't want that. Year four, Let the graping begin. The Romans knew not to be greedy. Too many clusters will not produce quality. Nip them early and your customers will thank you. Quality brings up the subject of fertilizer. The ancients had much to say on this subject. For green manure, they favor lupine, fava bean, fetch, straw, etc. They also liked ashes from wood or dung or lime kilns. In later years, Italy and elsewhere lost a good deal of marble statuary. Burn marble at a high enough heat, and you get lime. Good for plants, and cement, and whitewash. Bad for modern art appreciators. They had opinions on brown manure as well, another task best done in winter. There was a hierarchy of quality. Pigeon guano was highly regarded, better than any aquatic bird's. If that wasn't available, human waste was a second choice, and on to the quadrupeds. Two legs good, four legs not so good in this case. Again, with a hierarchy of dropping quality depending upon the animal droppings, sheep or horses are better than cows. Now you know. Urine was also prized by our cultivators. In general, it was best used if allowed to age for six months, You'll recall that Vespasian laid attacks on Roman urine. Now you know why. Specific ills called for specific cures. One ancient source informs us that worms disturbing vine roots can be discouraged by a mixture of pig feces and ass urine. If those are not readily available, then bull's gall. And so as the days get longer and warmer, the farmer can begin to enjoy the season of anxiety, wondering if nature will be kind to his efforts. Plenty of other work to keep the farmer busy, even if the poets don't see it. There will be more on viticulture and economy and harvest, all three subjects close to Vesuvius in due course. In the meantime, next time, May 1st, and a good deal of talk about sheep and wool and such. As a reminder, contributions to help underwrite the production of the series are more than welcome. If you're in a position to help, the donation button will get you to Patreon or buy me a beer. If you're a little short just now, then an upvote or a mention would not be unwelcome. Until next time, thank you for listening.